Hi, I'm Dale Sherbeck, and welcome to The HQ, a CHA Learning and Healthcare Can podcast serial where we dive into healthcare issues and topics from the perspective of its people and discuss them with those that are leading in the health system. Together, we'll try to unpack these topics and learn what actions are being taken to innovatively solve them today. In one of our first episodes on The HQ, we discussed with Kristen Winter of Sunnybrook the importance of immigration and creating pathways for internationally educated health professionals. This topic has certainly been one that has garnered much attention from national associations like our own, the media, and government. Kristen was also well quoted that we as a society, and certainly in the form of our systems, need to find meaningful ways to bubble wrap these individuals and their families and safely help them to traverse our systems and to get them from point of being a new Canadian or applicant to the point of working in our health system in a role they have been trained to perform. The key word that continues to come up in this context is navigation. While there are actions that can be taken and are being taken, the more we collectively pull on the threads of this issue, the more complicated it is becoming, and the more that is being revealed around the structural barriers that are making navigating incredibly difficult. Indeed, instead of well-marked paths, many new Canadians find dead ends and locked doors. There is a very real human cost and impact to all of this. It certainly, and most importantly, has an incredibly detrimental impact on the newcomers and their families, which in turn translates into social and health costs. But as we've discussed, it is also costing our health system when the people struggling to navigate arrival, licensure, and employment are the very professionals we're desperately needing to shore up our healthcare organizations and ensure uninterrupted quality services. In short, Every Canadian should desperately care about this issue. One organization that cares very deeply and is doing just that is the National Newcomer Navigation Network. N4, as it's called, is a national network for the diversity of providers who assist newcomers in navigating these complex Canadian healthcare and social service systems. N4 provides opportunities for professional development, education, virtual discussions, networking, and the sharing of data and resources. N4 aims to promote best practices in the field of newcomer navigation with the ultimate goal of improving the experience of newcomers to Canada. N4 is hosted here in Ottawa by the Children's Hospital of Eastern Ontario, CHEO, and to be clear, it was founded in 2019, before the pandemic, which also speaks to the fact that this is also not a new problem. From N4, I'm joined today by Christine Curry, the Manager of Health Equity and Diversity at CHEO. Christine has over 30 years of experience in the Canadian healthcare system and is known for her initiatives and expertise in equitable healthcare across socio-culturally diverse and marginalized populations. Upon attaining her master's in health administration, she was recruited to CHEO to lead the development of their patient experience department. As the manager for that department, she led CHEO's efforts to ensure an optimal experience for Syrian refugees that were welcomed to Ottawa in the early 2016s. In addition to oversight of the N4 project, Christine continues to lead CHEO's health equity efforts for their most vulnerable patients and families, including newcomers. We're also joined by Dr. Sahar Zoni. Sahar is the project manager for N4. She has a master and a doctor's degree in pediatrics from the Alexandria University in Egypt and a master of health administration from the University of Ottawa. Sahar brings to the role over 25 years of work as a clinician, lecturer, researcher, and the passion for quality improvement. 
she has worked internationally, including Egypt, England, and now Canada. Sahara's career path makes her the ideal leader for the N4 team to create a national network aimed to improve the experience of newcomers in navigating Canada's complex health and social services. Hi, Christina Sahar, and welcome to the HQ. Hi, thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you for joining us today and and for the work of N4 um, and to share with us, uh, you know, better appreciate the this, I think, very complex issue um, and provide a lens on it in terms of things that can be done um, and that are being done. So maybe, Christine, I know I gave a very brief introduction of N4 at the start, so perhaps we could start with you providing a more fulsome description of N4 um, for our listeners and stakeholders here. Sure, I'd love to. Thanks. Um, so N4 really, as you described, I was supporting the a large amount of Syrian refugees that we received in, in Ottawa and specifically at CHEO in early days of 2016. So, you know, my role at that time and continues to be to ensure health equity for our vulnerable families. So newcomers obviously are very vulnerable. They don't understand our system, sometimes language barriers, sometimes cultural barriers. So in 2016, all of a sudden we unanticipatedly received a large amount of children with very complex health needs. About a third of them that we saw, the 300 children we saw in the early months were really quite complex, you know, shocking to our healthcare providers who are used to seeing children with with, uh, congenital issues from day one. Mm-hmm. Here were children, you know, up to 13, 14, who had never had access to the health care they needed. And so we had malnourished children, things we'd never seen. Our wait list for wheelchairs doubled overnight as, as children had no access. They were using strollers to move around these children. Um, genetic issues we'd never seen uh, at this side of the world. And so our geneticists were fascinated by this, but it was an increase in in clinical things that we saw. But Accompanying that was all the equity issues that um, really challenged our staff. So seeing these families who were traumatized, we'd have moms who were hoarding food because they didn't know when the next meal would arrive. Um, You know, clearly crying and we weren't understanding what they were saying. We had an increased need for interpreters who were onboarding interpreters like crazy. So at that point, we were fortunate that the Ministry of Health, we put up our hand, the Ministry of Health uh, gave us a bit of funding to do some navigational support for these families. And so what we did, um, which was later led to N4's uh, start, was that we had this navigational support. Originally, we had one position that families could just call or staff to say, I'm struggling, I need more help. I don't understand what's going on. And truthfully, there were struggles on the family side who were saying, mm-hmm. I've gotten this voice message in English. I only speak Arabic, right? So this <laughs> staff spoke Arabic and could answer those questions. Or they'd say, I don't understand why this, they want this treatment for my child. I, I signed a consent form, but really, I didn't really understand. Can you help me? So she would help those families along. And then on the other side, we were helping our staff to understand what is what are refugees? What are their specific needs? How can you assure that you don't add more trauma to their experiences should you talk to ask questions about their experience in the refugee camp or should you not so we had this navigational support um, came to the attention of immigration refugees citizens Canada who were starting to now settle these families in other cities and those hospitals were starting to also say oh my gosh we're overwhelmed we're struggling and so they wanted us to share our experience and and you know shorten that learning curve for for other uh, centers so Sahar um, was brought into my team and and 
did a fabulous job of really writing up this short and dirty website we we did called Simplifying the Journey, which really talked to the tools we developed. Please use our tools. Here's our Arabic pain scale. Please use, use that. Here's other, here's this video um, that we did for mothers to understand why do you do G-tube insertions? Because we were finding a barrier there. And uh, from there, IRCC said, this is great. We have this new innovation grant. We want you to grow what you're, you're doing to help um, and over to you to brainstorm. So Sahara and I sat down and thought, what is what is the gap? Because we don't want to overlap. We know everywhere resources are short. And what we really found was settlement, the settlement workers who do a great job of welcoming families, of showing them how to get an apartment, how to get a bank account, how to get to the hospital, how to use the bus system, how to take in English classes. Uh, we usually don't talk to each other unless there's a big issue. And so we really do need to have ongoing relationships to really feed into each other's systems and, and make us more seamless from the perspective of newcomers. And we also saw that we don't, there wasn't a network and newcomers were not well appreciated for the vulnerability they have. We often talk about and rightly so about indigenous families and LGBTQ communities, but we didn't mm -hmm have an accurate perception of newcomers of vulnerable sector. So we formed this platform, this network, so we could all, we, our tagline is connect, learn and collaborate. So we can talk to each other, share resources, why and reinvent those pamphlets and so forth. And then um, also collaborate. So we've done some great collaborations like developing toolkits for our newest um, vulnerable populations, the U Ukrainians that have, uh, are on here on visas, our Afghan refugees. So we have toolkits that we've developed as a Canadian community and then put them out there for great use. So that's a little bit about we have education platforms and so forth. What most recently happened this year, so the IRCC was pleased with what we were able to accomplish. We have over a thousand members, 350 organizations. Um, the IRCC came to us earlier this year and said, we have this health human uh, resource crisis. Do you think we could leverage what you've done given you do that cross-sectoral collaboration so well, you have these tools, can you help us with this? And that's what led to the additional efforts that uh, we're undertaking right now of bringing people together to really look at not only equity for our newcomer patients and families, but equity for our newcomers who are our, our colleagues, our nurses, our physicians, occupational therapists, physiotherapists, and so forth, to make them successful. And ultimately, you know, we've all, after George Floyd's murder, we all put out equity statements, how we would do things better. Every organization has said, we need to diversify our staff. We don't represent the communities we serve. So that's another added bonus to having newcomer uh, nurses and physicians join your workforce is that you're going to represent your community better because that's who's broadly in your community as well. So we're really excited about the work that we're undertaking. Yeah, that's a that's a great addition and a, and connection. You know, we've been doing over the past month and a half um, a series on equity, diversity, and inclusion, and looking at different lenses through that. So, I think it's it's great that you're finding a way to leverage, um, you know, a human need in some respects, um, a, a social need, um, but also connect it back in terms of our I guess our organizational needs as well, um, and how we can sort of live and breathe our values. 
Um, so maybe Sahar, um, given your own sort of exceptional sort of lived experience and your own uh, status as, as a newcomer to Canada at, at one point, um, what are the hurdles and challenges that um, internationally educated health professionals do need to navigate and overcome to find appropriate uh, employment in Canada? Mm-hmm. Which is not a very easy question to answer, uh, and <laughs> it needs a lot. <laughs> it needs a lot of time, but I'll try to kind of uh, make a short list. Let's call it that way. So, um, although our, you know, the Canadian healthcare system has really relied historically and currently more and more on the uh, integration of, you know, our uh, internationally educated healthcare professionals, especially the internationally trained physicians and uh, uh, internationally educated nurses uh, and again you know we've seen with the COVID-19 how our system has really struggled with all these shortages in the healthcare system and I think post-COVID if, if, if I may say post-COVID uh, uh, it's even worse right so uh, challenges really start way way back uh, you know pre-arrival so pre-arrival um, having information, the correct information, uh, being available for uh, an immigrant who has healthcare background and who are thinking of immigrating to Canada is one of the real, real challenges, right? And really, um, you know, it's, it's, it gets them to maybe make the decision to come to Canada or not, but by having this poor information, you're kind of, you know, you're not being very transparent, right? And also information around the, um, the, they get about their own profession. So from the regulators, from the colleges, all the really, um, you know, the, the website they, ha- they have to go through to find the information. And the recency of this information is it you know, is it recent? Are the websites updated? Are they not? So that's another uh, challenge with with the information piece, right? And then having uh, their credentials being uh, uh, being accredited. So um, foreign credentials uh, is is always a, a not an easy thing. So they have to submit all their credentials. There is a cost, of course, that goes with that. Mm-hmm. And also there is a, a the the you know, the difficulty in getting these credentials right into the system from those institutions outside of Canada, right? Um, imagine people coming from war zones now, for example, you know, how can they prove that they have these credentials and uh, how long does it take? So time and money and, 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 and anxiety maybe for the, you know, for the internationally educated uh, professional and also lots of, you know, communications. And then navigating all these policies. So our our uh, um, healthcare is again it's uh, it's uh, regulated. It's a reg- regulated profession. So and there is a lot of uh, provincial uh, regulations that they have to navigate. They have to navigate the the different practices, the different procedures for license and uh, registration, right? And um, then they have to pass the, uh, the exam. So there are standard exams that they have to pass and that is takes time and it's, it's again costly. So while they're taking the exams, are they able to support their families? Are they taking on uh, you know, jobs that are non-healthcare just to survive? And um, how, how long will it take them to take these exams, right? Uh, but we 
then I think everybody then faces like, uh, you know, um, the real bottleneck, which is really finding the residency for the uh, internationally educated, uh, for the internationally trained physicians and mm -hmm. IMGs, which is really, you know, the, the real bottleneck there, because they have to get this residency piece and the residencies are not, uh, you know, they, they, their numbers are not really, um, you know, enough. So the number of residencies are very limited and uh, they actually have to, in a sense, uh, they are competing for a very small already number of residencies that are only offered to uh, internationally trained uh, physicians. But in that, um, in that category, they're also um, in a competition with the Canadians, uh, you know, who had to go abroad and complete their education, uh, maybe, uh, you know, in, in other countries outside Canada, and they're coming back. So the Canadian uh, international uh, educated uh, uh, physicians or uh, IMGs who are coming back, so they are all in this, uh, you know, they're all kind of uh, in this limited spot for those, uh, for those residencies. So this is really kind of um, a big bottleneck that they have to pass. And by the time they are applying to CARMS, which is the match program to get residency, mm -hmm. uh, they are facing another challenge, which is proving the their recency of practice. So imagine, you know, having to have to go through the exams and then apply for CARMS. So by that time, many of them would have passed this, you know, the time for um, to prove the recency of uh, uh, practice. So they would have to go back to their country of origin where they have a license to practice, leaving maybe their families here in Canada. And again, you know, uh, the mental, their mental, you know, their mental health status, their uh, worry about the finance piece and supporting their families, right? And they have to go back and and uh, maybe practice for six or six months or to a year and come back with this, you know, to apply again now that they have this um, recency of practice. Uh, for some of the IHPSs, it's also the uh, Canadian experience. So again, another. Um, thing that they have to prove, which is kind of a, you know, how can I have, how can I prove that I have a Canadian experience if I don't have a license to work, right? Mm -hmm. So it's, it's kind of very challenging, right? It, and it's sometimes it doesn't, it doesn't make sense. And I know there is a lot of um, discussions now in Ontario on removing that, right? Uh, but I mean, like it's uh, because, again, it doesn't really make sense. You go to the UK. I've worked in the UK. No one asks for a UK experience. Right. Or uh, uh, yeah. so I mean, like it, it really has to be uh, something that really has to be looked into. Um, another another would be another challenge is if they are going through the, uh, you know, the the practice readiness assessment, so they're not going through the residency, but they're going through the practice readiness assessment. We only have seven practice readiness assessment available in Canada. So there are provinces that do not offer the practice readiness assessment, for example, Ontario and uh, and the ones that do offer a, um, a practice readiness assessment, a PRA program, uh, they have very, they take very limited uh, uh, internationally trained physicians into their programs. Again, it's because of the, um, the lack of the assessors. And that's another, another, another challenge. Yeah, so, I mean, you, you paint a very vivid 
uh, overwhelming picture, to say the least, um, uh, in terms of uh, the barriers that these people are facing. Um, and if I was, <laughs> if I was in their shoes, um, I, I I would see you know giving up as as a as an easy solution to sort of getting on with some of these things. I mean, you've identified the challenges of the system itself, um, right? So, you know, residencies and issues like that are, you know, manifest regardless of whether you're coming from another country or not. It's already a problem in terms of um, how, how we produce physicians in this country. And they're coming into a system, therefore, that is already extremely complicated and overtaxed uh, in some respects, um, facing issues about time, um, money, paperwork, um, you know, com complicated um, processes that travel between different countries. So, um, so yeah, I, 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 my heart goes out to, to uh, the people you're, you're working with um, and you certainly evidence why you're needed. So maybe continuing on with that then, um, and I'm not sure who wants to answer maybe this next question. I mean, we hear stories um, anecdotally and some, you know, lived sort of experiences of, you know, finding or meeting, you know, internationally educated health professionals working in jobs that bear no resemblance to what they were trained for, driving taxi, working in hospitality, wherever that might be. Um, do you have any facts and figures um, on that, uh, how extensive that problem is and, and how many of these people are in our country um, inappropriately employed? Yeah, so it, there's not great data, um, but what we have seen from Stats Canada most recently is that uh, about 40% only of our internationally trained nurses and physicians are actually employed in their field. So that means 60% are doing those survival jobs. We've heard the rumors, right, of taxi drivers. We've, um, you, If you go to environmental services at any of our hospitals, chances are you'll find an internationally educated nurse sitting there who's just has become lost in the system. And I know Kristen spoke about that and, and she's found nine nurses just by looking within our own organization most recently and, and, and supporting them. So we do know it's a huge problem. And then on the converse, we know, you know, job vacancies have never been higher. We're 90% higher in terms of vacancies this year versus last year. We've all seen it probably anecdotally in each organization, how, you know, the retirements are just huge at every organization. The nurses have kind of had it with, you know, COVID just sent those who were petering on the edge of deciding, am I leaving the profession? Uh, COVID just sent them over the edge. I just can't work in masks and gloves and gowns. This is just not a quality of life for me. And they understaffing. So they're doing, you know, double shifts and, and not feeling like they have a, a good work-life balance. So, you know, it's, it's never has it been a more acute situation and never have we have so, so many people who are underemployed that are, are available who, you know, some of them do say, I wish I'd known I wouldn't have come to Canada and uprooted my whole family if I'd known how difficult it is, but yeah. they're still here and they're still willing to, to, you know, we can use the investment they've made, their home countries have made in their education, their experience to solve our problem. It's a win-win that's available. We just need to um, overcome these hurdles and get folks working together. Yeah, I, I totally get that. Um, so, I mean, so moving past like the barriers and things that you've just described and the system obviously could be doing much better. 
you know, I, I know from my own experience of having lived abroad, you know, that, um, you know, not everybody living in another country necessarily brings all the right skills. Um, and, you know, that doesn't mean that they can't learn them, but they, they nevertheless, they may not have all the skills um, necessary to, to take on the work that they aspire to. So through your work, have you identified some common skill gaps within your network that, that you could identify that might need to be there to support newcomers? Yeah, I'll speak to, I'm a, I am a nurse by training. Um, and so I'll speak to that and then I'll hand it to Sahara for the physician. What we've seen the internationally trained nurses is almost comparable to me. I trained and we're having a reunion this year, 35 years. I would not be safe as a nurse in Canada right now because my training, what we did as nurses then would be, uh, we what we would put in an ICU right now, we put on the units. You know, those mm -hmm. dialysis patients and the chemo patients, I would be totally uncomfortable. And so we see maybe some a comparison to IENs who don't do that level of work in their home country. Say you're from the India or Philippines, they're not used to critical care training uh, that we expect of uh, commonly of our nurses. So there is that, um, what we they call in the industry, a bridging need. So mm -hmm. there are programs right now, and Ontario has one uh, that the Ministry of Health is funding, where they'll do these bridging programs and get them up to, to the Canadians' speed of things. So they've got the basic nursing, they could function at an RPN or an LPN, depending on your province uh, function. So they could get jobs meanwhile by that. So they assess them and they have those jobs. And then we, we need more of what they're starting to do is these bridging programs to bring their skills up so they can be a full RN where we have so many gaps as well. Um, so it really is a win-win. We do have gaps in RPNs and LPNs. So that helps with that gap. And then it also helps to transition to those RN jobs. Mm -hmm. um, one of the things we're, we've looked at and we've seen as well is even if you're employed and you talk about that skill level, there's also the cultural differences that can't be underestimated between Canadian cultures and other cultures. So, you know, we've had very specific um, examples uh, where I come from is pediatrics. If you have a 14-year-old who wants to talk about contraception or their gender identity, that might not be a conversation you've ever explored or mm -hmm. ever been talked about in your in your formal training in another country. But for us, it's commonplace. Or Indigenous health and the sovereignty of Indigenous health and all those important conversations. So we've um, at N4, we saw that as a gap. They'll get some of that if they do that bridging and supervision. But we've also added in um, a short program of 12 weeks for uh, IENs and ITPs to, to take so they could better understand uh, their own cultural beliefs because it's hard to identify your own culture unless you really think about it and then to also understand the Canadian and what might be the differences and how will you adapt your approach to make sure that you are successful in your Canadian employment so you don't have families complaining about the, your approach or college complaints or so forth. So we want them, once they get the clinical skills, we really want to make sure they're also successful in their, their place of employment. So maybe I'll turn it to Sahar for some of those physician challenges. Yeah, hey. but I'll just sort of add, I mean, I think that's brilliant. Um, and, and, and I think a and then great lens sort of to look at things through because, you know, as as we're you know discussing, we're asking Canadians to look through those same lenses about their biases and things like that too. So I mean, you certainly elevate the need for that if your your culture has been developed outside of this country. So yes, over to you, Sahar. 
Yeah, I think it's very similar for physicians. So um, really, um, it's not the clinical skills, right? Because they get assessed for that piece. But I think it's understanding the culture, the Canadian culture, and really understanding, you know, um, you know, how, how diverse uh, you know, is our community in Canada, right? Because they might be coming from a country where uh, most of the country are the actual citizens, right? So Canada's unique in that it's just, it's it has such a diversity of populations that they deal with. Uh, and I think it's, again, the indigenous uh, health that they have to have a good understanding about. So that's why, as Christine mentioned, we have this uh, program that we partnered with St. Paul University here in Ottawa, mm -hmm. and it's going to be a three-month program. We're going to be offering it to ITPs and IENs, so both, and uh, we opened a registration for that program, and we have our first 60 are going to start next Monday. Wow. Uh, we are, uh, yeah, we're going to be offering it again in the winter, so keep an eye open for that, and it's going to be in English and French. So we'll have two cohorts and it's offered to IENs and ITPs from across Canada. We have our current cohort, uh, actually, uh, participants are coming from 26 plus countries. So, I mean, it's amazing. It's amazing to see how uh, um, we're also hoping that this program would kind of touch on their needs when it comes to understanding the Canadian culture, uh, conflict resolution. We heard a lot about, you know, interpersonal communication might be an issue and how can we empower them uh, by, by by touching on that. So we have, uh, you know, we have modules around that. Um, there is a lot of mental issues when it comes to, as you were saying, Dale, it's not an easy journey, right? So mm -hmm. how to support yourself, how to reflect on, you know, uh, on all that you're going through, through this license, uh, you know, uh, journey. I think it's another piece that we're going to be touching on the professors at SPU program. Uh, another thing that we offer them, we, which is, I think it's, again, I talked about, which was one of the barriers and challenges is the information. So information is kind of, uh, um, you know, they find information over, you know, in a lot of um, uh, websites, so they have to, and the information might not be regularly updated. So this is why we launched an RSS feed where we would be bringing this information to them through N4 and they can subscribe and they can receive and, um, you know, just get all the information from their colleges, from the regulators, from um, <clears throat> regularly in their uh, emails. And we are hoping also to uh, host like some professional development uh, sessions. So as Christine mentioned, you know, understanding consent, uh, understanding gender, you know, uh, conflicts, uh, all these issues, I think we will be tackling through our speakers. We, we, we're going to be hosting panel speakers for those uh, discussions. And uh, we have built a quite an information um, portal at our N4 website. So we curate a lot of e-learning and a lot of resources through our resource toolkit. So we've been um, recently we've been actually focusing on having resources for our IHPSs uh, added regularly. So again, English and French resources are being added, and. Um, our community of practice, I think it's another thing that we want to share. So uh, we have launched a community of practice. We have uh, four working groups. We just launched our first working group for the 
uh, internationally trained physicians. And we will be looking, we have a lived experience at the table with us, and we are going to be launching a table just for lived experience to kind of get their voice and make sure we're consulting with them. If we're making any recommendations on, you know, uh, on how to leverage their expertise into the uh, and leverage them into the uh, into the uh, Canadian healthcare system, so that's another I think another thing that we want to engage them and get to hear from them and get their feedback on. Well, it'll be very interesting to hear um, their stories after they finish their program and 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 uh, what difference it's made in their lives and their their professionalism. Um, so. Potentially, maybe a, a bit more of a difficult question for you. I appreciate I'm going to tread into some maybe sticky water. Um, so, I mean, it may surprise many in Canada, but I think as you know, Stats Canada has recently released information that reports that one in four Canadians don't speak English or French uh, as one of their own first languages. Um, so, I mean, that, that's a huge number of people. Um, and I, so again, I appreciate the, the question may be a bit more loaded and I don't want to put you in an uncomfortable position yourself. So certainly answer it as you feel comfortable. But, you know, from your data and your perspective, how much does language represent a barrier to employment in this country compared to, say, race, culture, religion, or country of birth? Yeah, we certainly have, you know, um, being in Ottawa, our hospital is very focused on wanting to be bilingual. We serve English and French people. Um, so official languages is very important. And yet uh, we have all these other languages that these folks come with. The international nurses and physicians actually have a language requirement to do twice. So before you immigrate to Canada, um, part of your process and being evaluated is, you know, your um, how educated are you, you? What's your age? What's your income? Uh, can you support yourself? Because we don't, you know, refugees we support, but immigrants we expect them to take care of themselves. So there's all this evaluation in addition to an, a, an English test. So they have to pass a certain level of English. Once they get to, so you're admitted to. Canada, you're welcomed. Um, and now you want to be a nurse or physician, you have to do additional testing at quite a high level. Uh, and you have to pass in an official language. So there, it's quite stringent. And it is a barrier that some of the nurses and physicians face. Um, there's various tests depending where they are across Canada, which is another barrier. And some are a little less relevant than others. Um, mm -hmm. You know, so they'll ask them questions about IT instead of about medicine, which they would flow through. But if they ask them technology terms, it, I would probably struggle as well. <laughs> so, um, but they do have that secondary language uh, skill that they have to pass. So it should not be a barrier once they um, are in their, their setting. So building on that, and I guess sort of maybe like the prevalence like, and as we discussed right within our health systems around racism and other kinds of oppressive exclusionary uh, practices. I mean, what role does the increased attention being given to equity, diversity, inclusion sort of policies and programs mean for our internationally educated health professionals? Um, and maybe, you know, follow up to that, what more is needed? Yeah, so certainly it's a facilitator before, um, you know, we talk about Canada as a mosaic 
and not the melting pot of the states. But we all acknowledged, especially uh, during the social justice movement that began in the summer of 2020, that we could do better. We do have biases, we have unconscious biases, and we have systemic barriers. So as we dismantle that, that's all important work we're doing at the hospitals, and a lot of it focuses on our patients and families. But the side effect is that it's going to help our our um, diversity within our workforce as well as people become aware of their biases and so forth. And I know that during the the work we're doing at Chio, one of the primary stories we heard was from staff actually who came forward and said, you know, I'm a black physician, and my colleague says, oh, and starts touching my hair because said, oh, I've never touched black hair before. You know, these microaggressions mm -hmm. are really a downfall. So if we can correct those things, we'll also, it'll translate to success for our international professionals joining our workforce as well, for sure. Yeah, well, you have to create a safe, inviting environment, right? So to attract and to, to retain um, this talent. Um, so, Sahar, um, in my previous conversation with Kristen Winter, uh, which has been echoed by many, there are significant ethical concerns around, um, I guess, aggressively recruiting, um, sometimes defined as poaching, uh, internationally educated professionals from other countries. So how does this work answer that issue from your perspective? Um, I think like we've, you know, physicians and um, other health professionals, they are commonly moving from one country to the other, right? We, mm -hmm. you really can't tell them what the, what, what to do, right? So we're observing a lot of movement. And um, when I was doing some research and reading why, what are the factors? So there are different, you know, um, theories why they move is it their success in their you know in in securing a job is it the the country and what they're offering is it better wages is it better salaries is it better uh, you know uh, even environments are they coming to another country as a refugee right are they leaving from a war zone so i mean like there are lots of uh, definitely factors that play into the movement of, you know, uh, healthcare professionals from one country to the other. But my sense is that uh, what we are interested for it and for really is really how ethical is it to, uh, you know, to waste, to brain waste the ones who are already, who have come as immigrants to Canada. I think that's the talent. That's the question. This is, I think this is where, this is the unethical, right? Where we have, mm -hmm. we're interested at, at N4. Uh, it's, it's these, uh, you know, uh, internationally educated health professionals have invested in themselves a lot. They have invested time. They have invested in getting their degrees. They've invested years and years of, of really attending to, uh, you know, to patients and to uh, even supporting the families of these patients. And they decide to come to Canada. And here we are, are we, uh, we are not doing a good job in really, you know, uh, making them, you know, welcomed and, and really uh, being able to, uh, you know, uh, build on these, on their expertise and integrate them into the system. For me, that's the brain waste. That's the unethical that, that really has to be addressed. And I think it's, it's uh, uh, 
we have started doing some, you know, reach out to employers and really understanding the HR, uh, you know, uh, process when they, when really they are recruiting from abroad. And uh, it's way, way less, right? It's way, way less than really the, uh, as Christine was sharing, uh, the, I, the IEHPSs who are already in Canada and are not being, you know, part of the system. I think we've heard from many and one of the, uh, our most recent webinars was with the internationally trained uh, physicians from Ontario who have come together to voice their concerns during COVID-19. They actually were very, very concerned and they were not being offered uh, any opportunity to share and to support our community during the COVID-19, right? It's not easy to feel that you are uh, able to help and you're not able, right? You're being disabled, <laughs> you know, because of the uh, of this license process, and you know, it's uh, and and we uh, it's it's just. Uh, it's amazing that they have a voice now. And um, I think what's really, we really should be helping them, you know, really look at our, you know, our, uh, uh, how can we integrate them properly, right? How can we make the time less? Uh, we are not saying we don't need to do assessments. We do need to do assessments. We need to make sure that, you know, they are totally capable of practicing, but it's just those, you know, um, the lens of those assessments, the, you know, the procedures and the and the the practices that really needs to kind of you know be kind of maybe revised or uh, we need to re rethink about uh, think of outside the box a bit. Yeah, yeah, and I think you're you're giving us lots of, I mean, why one I like the, the lens that you put on this in terms of you know it's not that we necessarily need to open the door wider and let more people into the country if we're not providing opportunities for those that we've already welcomed here. Um, and so, you know, so yeah, I think focus our attention there, but, uh, but I think as you're saying as well, we need to certainly change the way our own, I guess, paradigms and, and lenses in terms of how we see uh, people and, and our systems in that space to, to um, you know, I guess assessments shouldn't necessarily be barriers. They should, in some ways, from an education perspective, they should be enablers, right? They should be a way for creating skills as opposed to limiting access. Um, so, so maybe sort of building on that and the roles around leadership in this space, Christine, um, you know, what more do you think that we need from other health leaders in the, to support the amazing work that you're doing? Definitely, we need more leaders like uh, Kristen Winter to step forward, be innovative, and be open to new new ways of doing things. So, um, you know, they they need to be open to thinking about um, that bridging opportunity, to supervising, to providing opportunities, to think of it not as um, a risk management issue, but a way to enhance access to services for their patients. You know, we tend to, there's a definitely a bias that there's a presumption, oh, you don't have Canadian experience, it must not be equivalent. Mm -hmm. That's a false notion for sure. Uh, maybe they have different levels of experience and we can supplement that and seeing them as um, investments that we can 
we can promote and, and retain. And so what we found in international providers is they're much more grateful to get jobs than, than Canadian born. They will be um, very loyal to your organization. I don't think people realize that as well. There's a, such a gratefulness when they do land in the jobs that they've, they've wanted for so long. Look at all the hoops they're going through. Once they're there, they wanna stay. They don't wanna risk uh, uh, moving from an organization. So I think they need to see them as an asset. The other thing is continuing to do that EDI work because again, that retention factor, they will leave if they're not welcomed. If there is ongoing racism, systemic racism, um, microaggressions, eventually that will wear on people and they will leave. Mm -hmm. So I think you need to look at that. That's for Canadian born and your internationals. Um, and then staying attuned, there are people's feet are a bit to the fire. All the, you know, Ministry of Health was given a, a two-week um, uh, a goal for the both the College of Nurses and the College of Physicians to come up with innovative ideas. We're all under the gun in terms of this human health crisis, and it's still growing. So we need to get on top of this. This is not a short-term problem we're solving. This is a long-term problem. So we need long-term solutions. And so to think about implementing things, not for some pilot project or for three months, we'll do this or that, Think about implementing this long term. We are relying on Canadians uh, on on immigration to fill jobs permanently in Canada. That's our reality, and I think people think it's just a temporary thing, but it's not. So you need to think about this as a long term solution and not a quick fix. Um, and think about you know those opportunities for those who are in those training to have them come and be shadowed at your organization. So start thinking about nurse mentors who can who can shadow these nurses and provide that that experience at your hospital or the physicians who maybe are doing other roles while they're doing their exams and so forth. So being open to those innovative approaches and keep abreast, like stay tuned with N4 because we'll, we're gonna bring forward all these best practices that we're coming across as we've done these needs assessments across Canada. We're coming up with some really innovative practices that people have implemented and we're gonna bring those forward for others to you know beg, borrow and steal from each other is what I always say. Yeah, no, and that's that's great. And and um, be sure that when we we air this, that we'll provide a link back to N4, um, where people can continue to follow you and and learn from those practices. Um, and I, I, you know, I am struck as well, Christine, in, in terms of your own role, because of your your within your your job title, it's around the equity diversity side of things, and um, and the patient experience part of that lens. Um, and here we're talking about newcomers too. And I don't know that maybe everybody in healthcare is connecting those two things is really important. Um, but they, but I, I think a part of what you were describing that sort of, you know, strikes me as well to accentuate is, is valuing the, the difference that these people bring. Um, their diversity isn't, it shouldn't be a limiter, right? They're, they're not Canadian, they don't have Canadian experiences, and therefore they're less than, um, that their diversity actually brings incredible assets and value that we should be capitalizing on, quite frankly. Absolutely. And the comfort you see in your fam in families, your patients and families, when they see somebody who's of of uh, a similar background to them, it's just so comforting to feel like, oh, they see me, they recognize me. It may not be the immediate provider, maybe it's just in the hallways in your organization, but it just decreases the anxiety. And we often forget to think about what if this was us 
you know, Canada, for some reason, it wasn't our, our, our country of choice. And we went to another country. Imagine how comforting that would be to say, oh, there's another Canadian. They know me. We'll talk beaver tails and Timmy's, you know, it's just like <laughs> something that reduces anxiety. So diversifying your workforce is incredibly important to our, to our communities. Yeah, well said. Um, so, Sahar, maybe um, in the end, I mean, what do you see as success for N4? Well, I think we've um, we've come a long road. <laughs> we built <laughs> we built a N4 long road from, in a short time. Yeah, yeah, we built N four in a in a you know. Uh, so I, I, we've always have always always been aiming to uh, kind of support our stakeholders. So in in the same perspective, I think uh, our success would really be supporting our stakeholders who we have now. Um, you know. We've been working with for 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 a number of months now on the uh, health human uh, crisis resource crisis and really support them, and uh, we are hoping at the end of the you know with each table with each working group to come up with actionable recommendations that we can advocate for, and uh, this is just for the for the internationally trained physicians and internationally educated nurses. As I shared, we just focused, um, you know, we're focusing on them for the for our for our for this year. But um, our hope is that we will be able to advocate with the government, with the you know, with the with the ministries, with the with the different uh, um, decision makers on the recommendations that we'll have. We'll, as Christine said, we'll bring best practices. Already, uh, many provinces have started implementing change so they are uh, and we're hoping to be able to kind of showcase those and be able to say hey these are things that have you know um, they have been uh, implemented and maybe you can give it you know you too can give it a try and uh, maybe even engage you know others in discussions maybe some are interested to hear and they're ready they're not ready to take the step but we can help them right in taking the step and thinking outside the box and maybe making uh, you know changes to the, the the process of the licenses for the uh, for the IE HPSs, a uh, another dream for N4 or another <laughs> another mm -hmm. success would really be, um, you know, hearing that the more employment opportunities are offered for the ITPs and IENs. So our, you know, again our lived experience table uh, will be working with them very closely. We're we're um, we're we have an eye on that. So we're hoping also, uh, you know all the recommendations that have been done and have been presented to HESA, you know, from the Canadian Medical Association, the Canadian Nursing Association, uh, they, we can, you know, we can advocate for those recommendations to really happen. So increase in the residency spots, right? Uh, less discrimination when you're going through the whole process. Again, you know, I think, uh, um, maybe you know we need to maybe work with the employer more so maybe more awareness of the you know of the value of uh, employing IENs and ITPs so that's a piece that we're hoping to kind of you know uh, work more with the employers on and um, SPU so I think the program uh, you know for, for the program that we have with the with for the uh, uh, the three months program that we have with the SPU program, our hope is that it would, would, would not be only offered to three cohorts, but we will continue to offer it, right? Uh, we heard 
over and over that understanding the Canadian culture is a piece that they they really uh, need. So we're hoping this would kind of become available for all you know our IHPSs as they come into Canada, the ones who are here and the ones who are coming and uh, and immigrating over the years. So that's another thing that this program becomes kind of you know something that's already. Um, becomes available for them, right? Um, another piece that we heard is, is the mid-career. So mid-career physicians and mid-career nurses that they come into Canada, there isn't really a path for them, right? So creating that change of looking at, you know, mid-career physicians and nurses who come in and they do not need to redo, right, the exams and the, you know, and take residency. Maybe, again, that's something that uh, we heard a lot from our uh, side visits. So that's something that we would like to work on. Um, uh, similar to our work with the ITPs and IENs, we, we are hoping that we would be able to uh, work on the other IHPSs, right? So similarly, we would have, uh, you know, a community of practice discussing, you know, uh, pharmacies, uh, pharmacists and their path into, uh, you know, licensing into Canada, you know, uh, OTs and PTs and all the IHPSs. So again, that's something that we are, uh, uh, we're hoping we'll be able to kind of, uh, given our experience with the ITPs and IENs, we will be able to also uh, do similar work for the rest of the IHPSs, yeah. Thank you, Sahar. Um, maybe just a final question sort of in that space. Um, so, I mean, we've obviously, and there's a lot of attention placed on the regulated health professionals, um, nurses and physicians, and you've described others that are certainly areas of, of need as well. What about, is there a role or an opportunity for those other perhaps non-regulated professions as well um, where, you know, there's people who can support this or find pathways in? I mean, we've been hearing pre-pandemic about um, right, the, the, an overwhelming need for more PSWs, as an example. Um, and um, are there ways to sort of also attract, I guess, new Canadians or into professions like that, that may be also easier access points that don't have the same level of regulatory or licensure requirements? Just maybe a question to either of you. Definitely, uh, you see that the the internationally trained nurses, a lot of them are, are go for that jobs if they know about them. So definitely we need some uh, innovative thinking in terms of recruitment for those jobs. If you can think outside your usual boxes of, you know, we put it on our websites. If you reach out to those communities, you might see a greater interest. And again, right, diversifies your, your workforce, which is an added benefit for the hospitals. A lot of the IENs want those jobs. It gets them, as Sahar mentioned, you have to have recency of practice um, to show to get a license. And that allows them to show I'm in the Canadian system. I'm doing this work while they're pursuing their license because for nurses going home typically is not an option the way physicians will fly home and do three months back as a physician for nurses that's not an option so for them to they can do those jobs get that uh, recency of practice check mark and uh, while they await their licensing or they're doing their bridging program or so forth so it's definitely uh... thank you so I mean I think you know, we often hear about Canada as being the land of pilots. Um, <laughs> um, and uh, um, I, I think that an organization like N4 
is finding a way to harness, I think, those innovations and ideas and help spread and scale them, which is something that we need across the country more than ever. Um, so um, thank you for all the great work that you've started to do, um, will continue to do. Um, thank you for joining us today on the podcast um, and for sharing that and hopefully connecting people to your work for continuing on that journey together. For the opportunity. Thanks a lot. You've been listening to The HQ, and I'm Dale Sherbeck, your host. You can find this and other future episodes on the CHA Learning website, Apple Podcasts, or Spotify. We'd love to hear what you think, so please follow us on our other social media channels. Thanks for joining us in this discussion today. Please join us next time.